Hey friends, welcome to Body Image with Brie. I am Brie, a licensed mental health counselor in the state of New Jersey and a body image and eating disorder recovery coach. This podcast is designed to help you make peace with your current body. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of diet culture, body image, and learning how to love the skin you're in. Hey friends, and welcome to another episode of Body Image with Brie. I am so excited to bring you today's guest. I interview my friend and colleague, Dr. Morgan Francis. She is just an amazing clinician and presence on Instagram, and that was how we first connected. And she and I have collaborated a few times, and one of the things that we both really have understanding and talking about is the topic of grief. And that is unfortunately because grief is a topic that is both near and dear to our hearts, um, but we've also experienced grief in ways that not everybody has. Uh, Dr. Morgan and I in this episode actually go into a little bit of detail about the grief we experienced uh, in losing our brothers and not only how then that impacted our lives afterwards. For Dr. Morgan Francis, that was through an eating disorder. And for me, that was in body hatred and many other things. But we also talk about this concept of finding meaning and purpose in our grief. So it's a really powerful episode, powerful episode. And I'm just really excited for you to hear it. And I'm looking forward to hearing how this impacts you uh, in a positive way. I did want to put some uh, trigger warnings on the episode. Obviously, we are going to be talking about grief. So uh, just wanting to put a trauma warning on the episode. I do think we also mention um, eating disorders and disordered habits. So if that's triggering for you right now, this might not be the episode for you. So without further ado, let's go listen to Dr. Morgan Francis. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Body Image with Bree. Today, we are interviewing my amazing friend and colleague, Dr. Morgan Francis. Hi. How should, should, I always want to call you Dr. Morgan. <laughs> it's okay. You can. Everyone does. It's Perfect. not a problem. It's so wonderful to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to chat with you. And we became fast Instagram friends right in the beginning. And it's been so wonderful to see your platform and your message just resonate with so many people. So I'm so honored that you would take your time today to to be here. Oh my goodness, of course. And yes, it's been so much fun to see your platform continue to grow. And I was actually thinking to myself, about how we met and what drew me to you. And I would just say like, you always are so genuine and kind. And that just shines through and it was just like a magnet. And I was like, I just want to be in the space of this woman because 
her heart is just gold. So I just really appreciate you as a person on social media, someone that, you know, I learn from and also that I can call my friends. So thank you so much. Oh, those words are so beautiful. And you and you definitely inspired me in this platform. You would just get on camera and you would talk and you would just share your knowledge. And I'm like, yeah, I can do this too. And so, and at first, and anybody who's like starting off Instagram, it feels so weird to talk to your camera. Now I do it all the time. Now I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'll say to family, like, sorry, I got to go on Instagram. <laughs> I know. I know it does. It does. It is very awkward at first. And then over time, I guess we just get used to it because we know that our message is serving others. And I think Absolutely. that's what I keep reminding myself. It's not about me. It's about who I'm serving and how I can help. Oh, and that's such a good segue to uh, the introduction that I, I typically give with my podcast. But so one of the things that I am aiming to do is to continue to help normalize body image discomfort and body discomfort versus bad body image. And so I always ask my guests, if you have a story or a bad body image moment recently that you would feel comfortable sharing. Yeah. So, I mean, gosh, there's, there's been so many, and, and I was kind of telling you earlier that it was really great to see my progress because one night I came home from a long day of work of seeing patients and I was just not really feeling like myself, you know, just the heaviness of mental health was weighing on me. And I wanted, I always asked myself, what sounds satisfactory to eat? You know, what is something that would feel really good to eat right now? Not what I should eat, but what sounds satisfactory. And I made a whole thing of pasta with butter and this cheese from Trader Joe's. I love their frozen pasta meals. They so are good. the best. <laughs> and, um, I had a glass of wine and this was after, you know, 7 30 PM that I ate pasta. And I used to be so scared of pasta, really any carb for that matter. And it was just like, wow, I've come so far. And if my younger self could see me now, knowing that I wasn't going to feel guilty after I ate it, I wasn't going to punish myself and try to burn the calories off from what I accumulated the night before. I wasn't going to go into any restriction or deprivation following that. I wasn't going to do anything. I was going to sit down and I was going to enjoy my glass of wine and that bowl of pasta because it tasted delicious. And, you know, that to me would have been a typical thing that would have set me off. And it wasn't much back in my eating disorder that would set me off to then continue to binge on foods that I was restricting and then end up purging because I suffered from bulimia nervosa for many years. And so this was really not just like, not a, like a bad body image moment, more so like a body image revelation of Mm. how, how far I've come knowing where I used to be. I think sometimes for me too, and first of all, that sounds amazing is that there will be moments where I will see an old thought pattern of like, Oh, I see you like that's old. And I don't prescribe to that anymore. And so actually just the other day I had shared and I coached myself through this moment of feeling not sexy. So I had done an IGTV on not feeling sexy. And as I started to dive into what the belief system was, I was realizing it was twofold. One, I was sort of feeling not comfortable in my body, but then too, well, the story I was telling myself is I don't feel comfortable in my body and no one's going to love me because of this body. And 
as soon as I was able to acknowledge it, I was like, oh, that's an old thought pattern that is that is no longer true or relevant in my life. And once that happened, it dissipated a lot of that initial discomfort. And so one of the things I love talking about when we talk about body image are these litmus tests of, can you notice where you started and where you are now? Because sometimes with body image work, it can just feel like we are I call it an archaeological dig that we're just digging and digging and digging and there's no out. And sometimes there isn't an out. Sometimes it's just continual knowledge of, wow, I sat down and ate a bowl of pasta and a glass of wine and noticed that this is probably would have been a trigger in past times. And now you're just really able to listen to your body, which is so beautiful. It's very empowering because I had so many distorted views around food that I had to really break through to be able to become an intuitive eater, but also to be a positive model for my children. And that was really just something I I would never want my kids to be fearful of eating any type of foods, unless of course they had some kind of allergic reaction. I mean, that would make sense, but you know, I, I would not want them to have that. So we model the behavior we want our children to learn. It's not, you know, me not eating pasta and then telling my children, no, it's okay, but you can have it because children learn through that social modeling monkey see monkey do. And I want them to see mom eat you know, food that she finds fun and pleasurable and satisfying. I don't feel like I talk about it too much because there are so many people in this space who talk about intuitive eating, but intuitive eating was one of the major things that I had to come to in order to make peace with my body because the belief systems I held around food and certain types of food and quantities of food and fullness and hunger directly correlated to my body image and how I viewed my body. And I had that cognitive dissonance myself of, I would see people who are like, oh, well, mom can't eat that. And I thought, I don't, I don't ever, you know, if I become a mom, I don't ever want that to be me. I want to be able to enjoy and be, you know, present with my family and not feel like my mind is consumed with calories and macros and, all of the other things. And so, yeah. And I think it directly correlates to body image as well. Absolutely. You, you nailed it with what you said. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so with that, I'm wondering how, what is the trajectory of your story? How did you claw your way out of a rampant eating disorder into now doing work to help people with eating disorders? Well, I always like to tell people that it was a long journey. It wasn't anything that happened within a year. It took many years to get where I am today, because as you know, Brie, our bodies constantly change in shape and size, and we're not meant to stay the same size our entire life. So when my body would change just due to life, environment, genetics, I don't know. I had to basically kind of, you know, adjust, you know, my thought pattern and my feelings to make sure that I was still in alignment with my work that I've done, which is really like the healing from the inside out, not the outside in. But definitely the the key things that helped me was therapy for sure. Loved, loved, loved my therapist in college and understanding that my eating disorder really had nothing to do with food. Mm -hmm. It had to do with all the other things that had happened in my life and 
it was then projected onto my body as a way for me to think that I was controlling something that, as you know, is completely not in control. It was the tsunami of diet culture that I was completely enmeshed with and really having to learn about diet culture and make very big behavioral changes about what I was exposing myself to. And that meant how I spent my time, what I invested in, how I shopped, who I hung out with, what conversations I had, who I allowed in my life, who I was not going to allow in my life and really finding a new relationship with my body when it came to, um, movement. And I, I don't even like the word exercise because exercise is a measured outcome and movement just can be anything. It could be playing, it could be sex, it could be dancing, it could be running, it could be whatever you feel like you, you want with your body to move it. And so for me, that was a big long journey because I've always been an athlete. And so having to learn how I can be in an athletic body and be able to appreciate how my body genetically just looks, because it's easy for me to put on muscle. It's easy for me to be strong. It's not something I have to work at. And yet people assume things about me based on how my body looks. And this isn't something that, you know, I was just born this way. I didn't earn it. And so having the ability to communicate that and help people understand, I think was also a big piece of it. So all of that combination and just learning, as you know, reading, educating ourselves really was helpful because my bulimia was like a friend. I mean, it was what I knew. It was where I went. It was where I hid. It was where I felt my shame. It was where I felt control, well, a false sense of control. It was where my grief was showing up. And I definitely was primed to have an eating disorder based on things that happened in my childhood prior to losing my brother. And, but after the death of my brother, that's when things really escalated Mm -hmm. um, because it gave me that false sense of control. Wow. Uh, There's just, there's so much here I want to unpack. And I know that this is something that we share in common, having both lost uh, our brothers. And I would love to talk about that today because I think my grief journey has deeply correlated with my body grief journey. And I just kind of even wanted to go back in mirroring body grief, but even in pursuit of recovery. And I know people have a lot of feelings about that word, but in recovery from an eating disorder, you had to set really harsh boundaries and there's grief in that. So not only did you maybe have to set boundaries around friendships and relationships and places, even if you loved the Zumba class, but then this teacher, you know, was really disordered, right? I I have to say no to this, or, you know, I can't go around this person because they keep bringing up body size and, and that's not conducive to my recovery. And then on top of it, you were also saying goodbye to a friend your bulimia, who had comforted you through long periods of time. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with the book Life Without Ed. It's something that I required my students to read. And as a provider, I was like, okay, nothing really new, but I struggle with even demonizing the bulimia voice because I really actually believe I struggle with the, like the eating disorder voice at times, because I believe that it actually is a need that's not being met. Like it was a coping skill that was created out of necessity Mm -hmm. between not surviving and having this eating disorder voice. And I had a professor in graduate school who would talk about coping skills this way. And the one thing he would say is if you wore a winter coat in the middle of winter, in the middle of New York city, that coat is going to save you. 
But if you wear a winter coat in the middle of New York City in the middle of the summer, it could kill you. And the same is said for our adaptive coping skills, our functional coping skills, like developing an eating disorder, like developing an unhealthy relationship with food. They develop out of necessity. So what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I love that metaphor and absolutely. It reminds me of the work of Gabor Mate. He's a physician and author and speaker, and he talks about this when it comes to addiction. He primarily works with trauma and addiction, but I definitely feel like his work can apply to our relationship with food and our bodies as well. And it's helped me. Yes, I completely agree with you. My, my bulimia served a purpose and that, you know, purpose was, you know, to, in a sense like this, kind of safe. A, yeah, it was, you know, it's so funny. You said that safety came up for me. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And like all coping mechanisms that we get and we, that we have, you know, when they're overused, they become rusted and then they're ineffective. And this one definitely was ineffective and it was harming me in many ways. And so it was like, how do I let go of, again, that grief of letting go of the eating disorder when I just had lost my brother, I had to break up with the relationship because talk about boundaries that relationship was extremely toxic and abusive. And so I was really trying to get out of an abusive relationship. And so it was like all these things happening all at once. And again, thank God for my therapist. <laughs> I, always say, I always say, I wish I could find her today and write her a letter and be like, I really appreciated you. Thank you. <laughs> I always say therapy and then graduate school is like the yeah. best. The best mental health counseling I could never pay for. Also, too, and people who have eating disorders are prime candidates for being in with comorbidities, whether that be like having being in an abusive relationship, right? Yeah. There, there's so much nuance to it. And I just want to clarify, I don't want anyone to say like think I'm saying that eating disorders are good, right? Like, but I'm moving away from this language of good or bad. Is it developed out of necessity? You did not feel safe. And so you learned to control your food and your intake in your body out of, out of a need to survive. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I wonder too, would you feel comfortable just sharing a little bit about the loss of your brother? Yeah. So I was 16 at the time and we were very close. He was four years older than me and he passed away in a car accident And ironically, the day that I found out that he passed away in a car accident, I think it was the next morning. It must've been the next morning. I think I was just in such a, you know, numbed out state. I was like, I'll go get the mail out of my mailbox. And lo and behold, there was a postcard from him. I mean, I was like, oh my goodness. And the postcard was, you know, I, I love you. I wish you a great year. You know, I miss you. I was going into my senior year of high school. I mean, my junior, um, but regardless, you know, it was just a very nice, warm, loving postcard that I received from him. And then the last time we had talked, we never said, I love you. It wasn't something like, you know, we, we said often, but we did care about one another. And he said, Hey, let me talk to mom and dad. I said, sure. I'll go ahead and get them for you. This is before cell phones. Um, this was like, you know, the home phone. And he said, you know, I love you. And I was like, I love you too. And then I gave the phone to my parents. So I was so I guess I'm going to use the word lucky that I was able to have those moments with him, but you know, my parents right away threw me into therapy into grief counseling, but that was effective, but my, no one else got therapy. 
So mm. that's what was ineffective because, you know, my older sister was struggling. My parents were struggling right after about a year later, my parents then got divorced. So there was just a lot like a domino effect of so many things that happened. I think I set a record at my school for the number of missed classes. And yet I was still had like a 4.0 GPA. I mean, it was just, I think the teachers either gave me a lot of leniency or I just always dove into my education as a way to escape as well. Same. But I definitely, and you know, started drinking. I started partying. I started doing really unhealthy, toxic behaviors. And then of course came the eating disorder. And so it just, it just was a really bad time. Oh, and I, I just want to first acknowledge their grief and, and just say how sorry I am for the loss of, of your brother. And I think people don't realize this too, that when we experience grief, it's not just the loss of the person, but it's the loss of all the things we didn't realize that that came with. And I, I can even feel tears coming to my eyes as I think about what grief has meant to me. And it wasn't just that I lost my brother, but that I potentially, you know, if I have kids, I lost a future uncle to, right. to my children. I have, there's so, there's so much loss that comes with it that every every moment in in time it's is different like every holiday every celebration is always tainted with bitter sweetness mm-hmm. of what might have been oh i feel you i feel you so much <laughs> on that because it it's true it's never the same everything is just different and there's been you know just like i'm sure in your life there's been really big moments in my life, you know, whether, you know, graduating from college, graduating from graduate school, graduating with my doctorate, you know, moving, having the birth of my children, you know, marriage, like all these things. Right. And he was not physically here. Do I know he's around me? Do I know that he in my heart? Yes, absolutely. Do I want him physically here? I do. Yeah. And I'm allowed to want that. Correct. And as you know, going through the different stages of grief, we, we go, there's, it's not linear. It's, we move around and we're allowed to be back in that denial. We're allowed to be in the anger. We are allowed to not find the meaning and not know if we really can find the meaning and, or meaning might show up in a way that we didn't expect by us having this conversation right now. Yeah. And you and I being able to connect with the loss of our sibling and, you know, someone else might, you know, have gone through loss and, and they'll be able to relate to what we are saying. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's, there's no question. Nothing has changed the trajectory of who I am, of where my life has gone more than the loss of my brother, because it, it, it just, it's like love grief is love with nowhere to go. Oh, that pains my heart Mm -hmm. so much. That is such a beautiful a beautiful example. And, and I just, I echo everything that you've said. I almost feel like when we have lost someone, we are entered into a club that we didn't ask to be a part of, but then you just know, you're like, wow, I, I remember being there and God, I don't want to be there. That like first initial finding out and you are surrounded by love and support and it's overwhelming but then it disappears. And then it seems like the world has forgotten your loss when it's mm-hmm. so present for you. And I, and I might, that same professor, uh, Dr. Gillard, I'll give him a shout out. He described grief in pages and he said, grief 
it may be on page one for you forever. It doesn't mean it's not important to other people. It just might be on a different page. Mm. And that was such a powerful, a powerful visual for me because a lot of times I felt so lonely in grief. I felt the world has moved on and yet I'm still here. And I also remember one of the biggest things, and I remember I had already been in therapy. One of my biggest fears was that if I acknowledged grief, if I gave grief space, that I was going to get stuck there. That if I allowed myself to cry or be sad, then I wasn't going to be able to get back out of it. And Mm -hmm. that is patently untrue. That for me, I have found when I allow grief in, eventually, just like any other emotion, it ends. It ends. Just like we're not happy all the time, we're not sad all the time. And grief is such an unfamiliar feeling. And I I think we need to train kids to know and identify grief because I think that's what makes, I call her grief her. It makes her so scary is because we're not familiar with her. But even there are these moments in our childhood, which we sort of, maybe we identify them as something else. Maybe we identify them as like disappointment or rejection, but truly if there's a grief there and acknowledging how did we treat your grief? Did we say, suck it up, get over it, you'll get there next time, whatever. Or did we make space for her and say, wow, I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm going to sit with you in this and we don't have to fix it. We can just acknowledge that. And I love that because you bring up a really good point or something I'm taking away from what you're saying is that Yes, there's grief in life and death, but there's also grief that exists that doesn't have to do with life and death. Yeah. Could be the breakup of a relationship, could be the current state of the pandemic that we are in, the cancelization Correct. of so many things in our life. Um, you know, the, the lack, lack of normalcy. Of the lack of yes, exactly. And so, and I don't know, I would assume for you too, as a provider that's been touched by grief, I'm able to see it. Yes. It's like that club that you talked about. Like, so when I'm talking with a patient, they may not be using the words grief and loss, but that's really what we're talking about. Correct. So like you said, let's create that space and acknowledge and validate that this is loss and it hurts. Yes. And we're just going to, we're just going to sit in it and we're going to tolerate that. And we're not going to allow, you know, it to be under rug swept, but we're going to just say, oh, that's, that's what that is. Because there's oftentimes, and I don't know if this is for you, but I know for me, there's some days that. I'm feeling something and it feels off and I don't know what it is. And 10 out of 10 times it's grief. I can't name it. I can't name it. It's just this feeling. And I'm like, Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Hello, grief. You're here. Let's chat. And sometimes too, I think, especially as uh, I definitely identify as a perfectionist and being in this helping field, I see a vast majority of mental illness. And so I don't, I, I don't, truly identify with depression. It's just not something I identify in myself, but I experience dipsy doodles where I'm like, wow, I am just in this suck. And I, I am just sitting here and that's part of the stages of grief. Mm-hmm. And, and so just to familiarize people, are you familiar off the top of your head with the stages of grief? Yeah. You're well-versed in this. So share what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief are. Yeah. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the originator of the stages of grief and she worked with people that were, you know, dying and then their family members. And so there were originally five stages and the, the first one's denial Second one is anger. The third one is bargaining. 
The next one is depression or sadness. And then the fifth one was acceptance. And then her work with Dr. David Kessler had reemerged, um, uh, I would say about last year or the year before. And he added a stage called meaning. And Dr. David Kessler had recently lost his son to an overdose. And he wrote a book called Finding Meaning. And it is a powerful book. And he talks a lot about grief in all his different forms. And if you haven't listened to the Unlocking Us interview between Dr. David Kessler and Brene Brown, oh my gosh, I had to pull my car over because he talks about what it's like for parents to lose a child. And I don't, I don't want to misquote him, so I'm not going to say what he said, but I encourage every, every listener to listen to it because what he says, how parents feel about when they lose a child, he, it's like he nailed it. He, act, he, he articulated a feeling that I've never had the words to be able to describe. Mm. And I just, I had to pull over and I thought, oh my God, this man gets it. And he's incredible. He's so in the club. He's, he's in the club. He's in the club. And these stages are not linear. They don't go from, you know, how I just talked about them. It's a scaffolding for how we experience loss and we can move around. And it just gives us a map so that, you know, when we're feeling angry, it makes sense. When we are thinking in bargaining, so if I would have done this, if I would have taken him to the doctor, maybe he would still be alive. If I would have called him, then maybe he wouldn't have killed himself. You know, if we're mm-hmm. talking about suicide, I had a friend recently die of suicide this past year and, and that really affected me. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, so that's where the bargaining is, but there, we can float around the stages and sometimes we never get to a stage. Sometimes we just have our own emotional home where we stay for the majority of our time. All of that is just so powerful. And I clearly need to listen to that podcast episode and read that book because my my brother passed away from from an overdose and i i never talked vocally about my brother because i thought i was respecting my family right i i i was like i don't i don't want to talk about it because i don't want there to be any assumptions made about our family based off of this and i ended up asking both of my parents i'm like are you comfortable if i talk about brendan and for me there's power and even just using his name. Yeah. I don't know if yeah. you've, you've when you said that I got chills. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Of just, you know, he's still, he's still my brother. And I, I remember one of the first times that I met somebody after he died and someone was like, Oh, do you have any siblings? And I did not know how to answer that question. And I, I just remember being like, Oh my God, I could make them so uncomfortable right now. I wanted to go back to a point that you had made earlier. I never got that final moment with my brother. I remember being grieved in therapy, being like, I don't remember the last time I talked to him. I don't remember what the last conversation was. And I remember my therapist trying to tell me, maybe that's for the best, right? Mm-hmm. That the last conversation you, you had you had with him wasn't a bad one, that you can pick which one it was. And there was power in finding closure in that. One of the things I wanted to continue to talk about is this idea of acceptance. I think there's a common misconception in our world that acceptance means that we like it or it feels good. Yes, it's a huge misconception. And I often find, especially when it comes to body image, we use things as healing bombs that were never intended to be. So Mm. we talk about body acceptance, but nobody wants to talk about body grief or body discomfort. Mm -hmm. And we cannot get to acceptance. Acceptance 
is a byproduct of the work, of the grief. It is not a stage at which you arrive. It just, it's a byproduct. What are your thoughts on on acceptance, whether it your grief or with body image? I love what you just said. I really do. And how I understand it through the work of Dr. Kessler was that you're right. It's not about accepting this. We'll never get to a point where we, we would ever want to accept uh, the loss, the death, the reality of what was, you know, handed to us. What he, how he describes acceptance is it's a return back to our life. Mm. It's a return back to ourselves in a way that's always going to be different. As you said, we're in the club now, but we return back to it. We start to live again. We start to whether and, and living again is a continuum. It's it's not like living like, okay, maybe for some person it's getting out of bed. Maybe for another person it's finding love again. Maybe it's, you know, taking a trip. Maybe it's just meeting friends out for, you know, coffee. So living life again can look very different depending upon that loss. And so if we're talking about body image, living life again could be so many different things because as you and I both know, when we suffer from body dysmorphia or an eating disorder, we aren't living life. You know, even when I was at my thinnest, I often tell my patients, I don't, I don't ever wish for that body back. I wish for that time back because I lost time. I lost opportunity. I lost relationships. I lost my life because everything was so consumed by my eating disorder and my disordered eating. Even when my, I was an active on bulimia nervosa, I was still doing diet mentality. Yeah. Right. So that was a whole nother chapter post my eating disorder. Yeah. But that's what I, how I understand acceptance. And I'm going to acknowledge this because I've heard you acknowledge it before, but acknowledging that there's privilege in you being able to desire that. Because for me, if somebody gave me the opportunity to be in a smaller body, I would absolutely take it. But no longer would that motivation be because it would make me a better person, a smarter person, a more loving person, a person more deserving of love. I just would be treated better and my life would be significantly easier. Yes. Yes, it would be. And it's horrible and it's awful. And it makes you want to cry just that you or anybody else has to, has to experience that. It's just, it's horrible. Yeah. And my heart hurts for you and any other person, child, adult that has experienced weight stigmatization because it's thin privilege. And obviously there's white privilege that I have, but there's thin privilege. And then I've also talked about, which I I need to talk about more because I only do it on my podcast. There's pretty privilege and I have pretty privilege as well. And that I, you know, is a whole nother area where it's not just that I, I, I exist in my thin privilege body. I also have a pretty face. So it's gotten me, I've gotten away with a lot of things. I've gotten, you know, privilege out of that. Yeah. Um, and so, and you did nothing to earn those things. I did or, not earn right? it. You just, it just exists. And, and Jess Baker actually talks about pretty privilege a little bit. And she's like, you know, like the Grand Canyon isn't pretty, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's choosing to seek beauty in all persons and all people that we all have beauty. And for me, 
aesthetics isn't even a value that I hold dear to a person, right? What what's in, what's an important value for me is how kind they are, how compassionate they are, how understanding they are. And I think that's what drew me to you is just your heart. And I know for me, so even coming back to this, this idea of finding meaning and purpose, like I remember all the emotions today. Um, you, I had shared a graphic of my superhero and you shared with me that you showed your daughter. I did. <laughs> and she thought it was cool. And it was it just, awesome. Like to me, that is, it's so powerful because you're, you are doing the generational work of undoing body dysmorphia and body hate in your family. And it starts with your daughter. Like your daughter will grow up knowing body diversity. Yes. And that is that to me, it, it, I'm not going to say that it's made it all worth it, but it makes it that much easier to be like, wow, a generation of kids are going to know body diversity exists. And a friend, I'm, um, I'll find out if she's okay with me sharing it, but she texted me the other night. She was like, I have to tell you, she said, my, my kid was having a hard time going to sleep. And she was like, can I go, can we go on Instagram and watch your, your friend who's really positive about her body? She always makes me feel good. <laughs> oh, like, wow. I, I, my heart has made space around grief. Like I can hold that, but that's the, that's it. I'm living my meaning and purpose. And so Mm -hmm. are you. And so are you that the, Mm -hmm. that the women and the the individuals that we come into direct contact with, this is how it starts is it doesn't make it better, right? It's not like it doesn't hurt. It's not painful. There's this amazing graphic on Instagram and it's two sides that are raining and one size says it's wet, it's cold, I'm uncomfortable, I hate this, it's raining. And then the other side, it says it's raining. It's acceptance. It's the meaning, it's the meaning yeah. we attach to what we focus on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so what would you say, what would be the best advice to give somebody who feels like, okay, all right, I have body grief, I feel this grief, I'm in the body grievers club, like I belong here, but it hurts and I don't like being here. What would, what would you say? You know, my first response to when people ask me this question is to validate, you know, really to, to validate and let them know that their pain, their hurt is real. I think there's this tendency that we try to take people out of their discomfort because it's hard for us to see them in pain. Mm-hmm. And part of my work was not only to learn to tolerate other people being in that discomfort, but to be able to tolerate my own discomfort, seeing another person uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I really try to create space for with my clients or even my children. I don't, I'm not a parent that rushes in and tries to make it all better. I mean, I, of course I want to make it better, but that's not my first reaction or reflex. It's to sit with them. You know, if it's my children, I hold them. I let them know that, yeah, it's, it sucks. It's hard. It's loss. And how can I support you? And if you don't know, that's okay too. That's so powerful. And that's, that's what it looks like to hold space. 
right? Yeah. Is to just sit in in the suck with someone. I often will ask members of my body grievers group when they share their body grief, how can the group support you? Because I think we do rush in to fix it and make it better because it's uncomfortable for us. Mm-hmm. And there are times where I still find myself struggling with that. I think even in my anti-racism work mm-hmm. and acknowledging my white privilege that mm-hmm. I show up quickly mm-hmm. to fix it as opposed to let me make space for your hurt and your discomfort. Mm, and- absolutely. Absolutely. And, and definitely I reached out to an old colleague of mine and her name's Dr. Michelle Melton. And yes. she's psychologist and she is going to start helping. We're going to do consultation on anti-racism work because um, I attended a conference and I noticed I have so many blind spots that I didn't even know were blind spots. And that's our anti-racism work is to be able to have someone hold something up in front of our face and not turn away. And not say, oh, no, like, this is too uncomfortable for me. Like, I need to be uncomfortable as a white woman and to really do the work. And so I completely agree with you that there's just, there's learning and there's conversations to be had. Absolutely. So I know we're coming up on your time. I wanted to just share a quick story, and I hope this will aid as a healing bomb to the people who are listening, but I am a big fan of EMDR and trauma therapy. And if you have the resources to do trauma therapy, I think it can be super beneficial. And I, I remember it actually, the target was at the beginning of the pandemic, or I guess it was middle when my taxes were due, my notes were due and I was feeling overwhelmed and stuck. And what ended up coming up for me in the EMDR session wasn't those things, but feeling like, what's the worst case scenario? What's going to happen? And really what the main trigger, like the the main memory I could think of was my brother. Mm -hmm. And like, well, the worst case scenario, every time I found out that he had overdosed, uh, was he going to die? And I had said to the therapist, I was like, well, he did die. Like the worst case happened. And I I think at 16 years old, I thought, well, then that's going to be it. Like, that's going to be the end of me. And so she had me have this conversation with 16-year-old Brie as 30-year-old Brie. Like, what would she say to that child? And I'm a therapist and I hate Gestalt. Like, I'm like, oh, this is so stupid. This is not helpful. And they were like, I understand. Just, you know, I'll close my eyes. Just imagine. And I started weeping of just telling 16-year-old Brie, it's going to suck. It's going to hurt like hell and you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are going to be helped by your story. Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, I just, when I want to encourage, you know, 16 year old Morgan, the same thing that the life trajectory that she's going to have is not only going to change the genealogy of her family and epigenetics of her family, but it's going to change a generation of, of women that come. Mm, gosh. Okay. I, I can't, I, all my mascara is going to be running down for you. Got me <laughs> I'm so grateful for you. Tell me. For you, you are just a gem. You are just a diamond. I just, oh gosh, girl, you are just heart of gold. Heart so of gold. grateful for you. So grateful for you. Tell people where they can find you. 
So I'm located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and on my IG, it's at Dr. Morgan Francis, and I am a private practice owner of Scottsdale Premier Counseling, and um, I have a couple courses. I do have a course on grief that it's loving yourself through loss, and I love that course. It takes you through the, the six stages of grief, and then it also comes with a workbook, and it also comes with body release exercises to help you move grief out of your body through gentle movement, like progressive muscle relaxation and yoga poses and meditation. And so we use gratitude. We use some techniques like the butterfly hug that I'm sure you've the seen. butterfly tapping, yeah. Yes. And I also have a, a course on body image. So bye-bye body blame. You deserve to love your body without having to lose weight, right? And it's great. And I'm excited. I, in 2021, I'm really looking forward to developing additional courses because I've had so many people reach out wanting to, you know, access information. And so that's my, that's my goal for 2021 is to make mental health more accessible for people. So, and I have mindful messages, which are free mindful messages of text messages that come straight to your phone that anyone can sign up for. And I recently did a meditation on it. So everyone got to do a meditation on their phone with me. There's going to be another meditation coming out on gratitude because of Thanksgiving. And then anyone who signs up for mindful messages gets all the latest and greatest when it comes to savings and information that I share. And that phone number is 480-605-1768. And that was created after my, I lost my friend to suicide because I thought, well, maybe if he just would have gotten a text message, letting him know he wasn't alone maybe it would have bought him a little bit of time. I don't know if it would save his life, but he would know that he wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. And so uh, mindful messages are, are very dear to me and it's been great. People have really responded well to them. Wow. Well, I will make sure to include all of that in the show notes. Dr. Morgan Francis, thank you so much. Appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for joining me for this episode of Body Image with Brie. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a comment below or share this link with somebody you care about. If you are interested in learning more about how you can work with me, you can email me at bodyimagewithbrie at gmail.com. And for more podcast episodes in which I've been a guest on, you'll find that in the link tree in my Instagram. Thanks again for being here and until next time.